Okay, this is the Sight Pen Podcast, episode 12. Um, we were supposed to have a special guest, but in, I live in Seattle, and we had a really bad windstorm the night before our special guests were supposed to um, do the show. And since I record from my home, and the power went out, as did the internet, and did the entire power for the whole city went out, um, that was not possible to do, because I didn't get power again until the next day. So that was, like, super fun. So we are, so we scrambled to come up with something here to put together and, uh, joining me in the scrambling is, uh, Nick Nisi. Hey, and Neil Roberts. I'm just happy to be here. And I, of course, am the hostess with the leastest Tori Rice. Um, the, uh, let's see, I'm going to bumble my way through this, but if you want to, uh, learn more about SitePen and what we do, um, you can go to SitePen.com. Uh, you can also follow us on Twitter at SitePen. That's S-I-T-E-P-E-N, but you probably know that because it's on the podcast itself. Um, so let's see. Before we get started, I just got to go over uh, the sponsor for today. Um, it, apparently, uh, after doing the Canada one, um, travel has been you know travel to countries has actually been a really good sponsor um opportunity so i've had i've had a few uh approach me um to do sponsorship and this one comes from the democratic people's republic of north korea um so hey guys (laughs) hey guys i'm just trying to i just got to read the thing and then if i don't the supreme leader is going to be really mad so i just got to read it okay guys like don't interrupt me Just play along before something bad happens. Hey, guys, you know that spring break's coming up, right? And instead of of hanging out on the beaches of Hawaii or engaging in other capitalistic um, things that are going to just ruin the entire world, how about you and your college friends go to North Korea? I've heard very great things about this country. It is the greatest country on earth. And we know how you America, I mean, how you guys know how we enjoy winning all the time. Bye, Tori. (laughs) (laughs) He's been killed. (laughs) Tori has been killed during his North Korean ad read. Oh, no. (laughs) They must have had another windstorm. <laughs> so uh, this officially makes us the um, the podcast equivalent of that movie, The Interview. How they took down Sony because of that, you know. They have now taken down Tori. <laughs> they don't like uh, they don't like the media pretending to be something they're not. <laughs> oh man, Ambassador Rodman's gonna be so upset. I know. This has to stay in the podcast, right? I hope so. Okay. We had a little bit of technical difficulty as apparently I was not reading the promotional material to the greatest of standards that the dear leader requires and everything just shut down. I was kicked off of Skype. The internet went down for a minute and I, you know, eventually came back up. So, um, I'll just leave it there with saying, um, North Korea, come hungry, leave hungry. Nope. That isn't right. Hold on. North Korea, take nothing with you but memories. Seriously, don't take anything with you from North Korea. Oh, see, what I had heard is that they have free promotional posters and that you can just <laughs> you can just take one off just of take any any wall and bring it back with you. They like they they encourage like I heard that it's like a national it's national pride for homeowners to well whatever the equivalent is of homeowners in a socialist country. Uh, slaves. Um, slaves. To, to take the um, political posters um, explaining that they should work hard and, and not eat too much, uh, et cetera, and hang them up in their homes. So I, I heard this actually a, a, a custom of North Korea. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. You know, the thing that, really, that I really enjoy about North Korea um, is that you know, I'm really intrigued by this whole idea of just winning. This just winning so much, you get sick of it. Um, and I, I mean, they, that's what they do. You know, that is what they do. They just win so much. Um, so, 
Anyway, North Korea, check it out. It's yeah. a place. What's fun is that we know for sure now that everything that we say about North Korea is true if our call continues uninterrupted. <laughs> so today we're going to talk about um, measuring performance. We're going to talk about prototyping tools, um, so prototyping designs to give to developers. Uh, but then we're going to have a, a bug of the week. Um, I want to tease the bug of the week because we were talking about this and I started kicking out all these ideas about how to solve this problem. And then Neil told me how to solve it. And I was like, that's going to be a great bug of the week. So um, Neil came to us and said, wow, this was really fun. How do you identify a broken image in a functional test? So like think random images that could be pulled in and put on a page. And how do you detect if one of them is a broken image in a functional test? Um, so we'll get to that in a little bit. That's a little teaser. We do teasers and stuff now. Um, get people excited. Excited yeah, to learn. Yeah, get you excited. Not as excited about going to North as going to North Korea, but like pretty close, honestly. <laughs> so stick around for that one. I want to go to, so Nick, go to that new ski lodge in North Korea. That's yeah, it's beautiful. There's a, there's actually a Futurama episode where uh, Zoidberg convinces Hermes to go to this marriage retreat planet, and him and his wife go, and it's a forced labor camp, uh, but it works. So that's kind of like the North Korea, like if you wanted to rebuild your marriage, a forced labor camp is the perfect way, and North Korea can help. Yes. See, there are many benefits that just get overlooked here with our Western media, which, as we know from watching, um, you know, Trump uh, all these all these months, the Western media can't be trusted. No, nope. exactly. So, yeah, they have agendas. You know, but yeah, there's agendas. Yeah, the DPR, but the people have agendas. <laughs> yeah, the DBRK no. is going to keep us in check, though, with with Vice President Rodman. Mm. Yes. No. Yeah. Like that guy. You know, the worm knows where it's at. <laughs> okay. So, Nick, um, let's talk about measuring performance. Uh, another one of Trump's uh, favorite favorite topics. <laughs> Yeah, so measuring performance. Um, this is something that I'm looking into a bit this week, um, and you know, there's there's lots of ways. If you if you actually go to Google and, and do a search for measuring JavaScript performance or, or measuring measuring page performance, uh, it's going to tell you about things like using page speed insights and analyzing how fast your page loads, how um, how things. Uh, you know, are things gzipped or everything relating to page load and, and initial setup uh, that you can do in kind of an automated way. And and so that's what I'm kind of looking into is doing something in an automated way uh, where I can measure the performance of not necessarily the page and page load, but individual components on the page and how they they work, how, how performant they are uh, so that we can gauge kind of when something goes wrong and and would cause a significant page slowdown or application slowdown. And so trying to determine that, I, I thought I'd open it up to discussion to see what your guys' thoughts are on on analyzing performance and, and kind of some of the, the thoughts that we've come up with for, for doing that. Um, so this is, uh, just to be clear, this is kind of once you've gotten past all of the kind of the normal stuff. Or sure. should we, do you want to go over any of that stuff, the normal stuff you would do to, to, I guess, increase performance and then analyzing it, right? I mean, sure. is it kind of, are they two separate things like the, the increasing and the analyzing, or is it kind of one and the same, like how you approach it? Uh, I'd say it's kind of one and the same. I mean, there's definitely low hanging fruit that you can um, work at and, and knock out performance things easily. And then writing good code, you can avoid things like memory leaks and all of that. But sometimes things still sneak past. And so it's, it's really finding those things. And you can find that with, with the browser tools that are available, you know, Chrome and Firefox developer tools are superb for detecting memory leaks, finding, uh, profiling memory and, and, um, runtime and all of that. But, uh, I was looking for more of a way to do that in an automated sense rather than having to run a profile uh, actually you know work with with a component on the page and analyze it manually. I was looking for more of an automated approach to that. 
So I don't I don't know if such, if the type of thing exists in testing suites, but one of my so back in the day uh, when I worked on the uh, Dojo XDTL project, um, which was uh, kind of a way to do templating in JavaScript, there were I mean obviously performance problems once I got it working, and it, like weird weird problems in specific browsers, specific versions, right? Like when you're dealing with strings and node manipulation, you're going to hit some weird edge cases, uh, especially when you're doing a ton of rearranging. Um, and my favorite thing that I used in that was the console time and console time end functions. Yes. Um, and what was the real thing that was really cool about that is that they had labeled uh, time and time end functions. So I, uh, I was able to nest uh, those uh, functions inside of each other to the point where you can figure out what's actively going on in the entirety of the uh, area that you're measuring. And then within that, you have the different sub-operations. And it would, it would do a bunch of fun performance things, but then you could total up um, different labels as well. Uh, and I think that kind, of, that kind of tool is really easy to write, um, even if it's not built into uh, your, your functional test suite uh, as a whole. Um, just writing something that that is able to label and nest operations is, is huge. Because um, I think one of the things that I, I ran into is that there would just be an operation that was very quick, but was ran like 5,000 times, right? So eking performance out of that that little thing uh, is not, it's not obvious when you run the start-stop as a whole. But when you actually break down the problem into into little sub items, then you really get a sense for how for what's taking the longest time to run. Yeah, definitely, and that's something that I have done um, previously in working on components like this. You know, we want to measure the startup time, or we want to measure the performance of something, um, and you can do that with with console.time and time end. There's also console.profile and profile end. Um, that will will do that, and then it'll load that up into a memory profile that you can uh, see which uh, actual methods were getting called and how long it took for each method to get called, um, which is also pretty cool. Um, and I was looking for maybe a way to to um, automate that a bit more. And so one thing I could do is uh, using something like an intern functional test, I could just send code to execute on the page that calls time and time end or profile and profile end. Um, and yeah, does I mean, that. I think that'd be a huge help. Yeah. Um, and, and, and yeah, it, it kind of analyzes the performance there. Um, and, and so that's one thing that, that I'm looking into. Another thing just kind of along the same lines of console.time, there's a, um, there's actually a window.performance uh, property that exists in the browsers, IE 10 and up. And uh, the most useful thing on there, I think, is uh, performance.now. And that is, that's the same thing as date.now, but it's sub-millisecond. So um, date.now will give you the nearest millisecond. This one will give you, it's actually a float that, that will give you a more precise time, uh, or as they call it, a high-res timestamp. Uh, so that you can you can really get good performance metrics from that by using that. Um, so that that's one thing. Another thing is um, we and this is kind of getting you know we can we can kind of analyze performance and say oh all of the components on a page should initialize and and be loaded within you know so many milliseconds they should be done and kind of have a have a threshold that you can go above a little bit or below. Um, but kind of an average of how long it should take uh, for each of those. But another thing that, that you could analyze is um, the frames per second usage. So if I'm doing something, if I'm working with a component, uh, actually you know clicking buttons, dragging things, doing whatever, um, is it performance still? Does the frames per second average uh, stay around? 60 frames a second, does it drop to 20 frames when you do this certain action? Um, that's something else I'm looking into and, and trying to figure out a, a good way to automate that. I don't know if there really is one, um, but that is definitely something interesting. And then finally, um, uh, so uh, memory usage. 
and, and just trying to automate that or, or um, managing reflows of the page where a certain action might cause a significant piece of the component to have to be repainted in the browser. Uh, and if that is happening over and over too often, it can really make the page, uh, the, the component itself look like it's not working well. It can look like it's really slow. Uh, and that can be hard to deal with. So looking for a way to detect that, and I actually did find a somewhat automated way to do that um, on a a Paul Irish project on GitHub called Automated Chrome Profiling. And you can basically start up Chrome uh, and give it a remote debugging port as a flag. And then um, there's a wrapper, a, a node wrapper that you can use to write code called Chrome Remote Interface. And that will... Uh, you, you can basically ask Chrome about things. You can ask it to perform a profile uh, and then save that profile off and analyze it later. Uh, and you can do things. One of the examples that he has in there is actually testing for layout thrashing where it's testing for how many times things got uh, repainted. And, and um, you know, you can, you can kind of set a threshold around that in a more automated way. So that's, that's some cool stuff that I didn't really realize existed before digging into this. Uh, I didn't realize how much you could do uh, with uh, Chrome in debug mode. Yeah, and that's like that's nice, but I still worry of your unless you're doing just Chrome. The problems are like, going to probably be unique to browsers, especially when it comes to DOM rendering. That's I mean, yeah. that's cool that you can see it. Like you can hit the you can hit the big mistakes there. I think. Yeah, and that's definitely right. You can do you can kind of get like an eighty percent. You know, th that's kind of how I test too. And in, in when I'm working on stuff, I primarily have a browser that I use um, where I do most of my my development in just to be rapidly developing it. And then at certain checkpoints or milestones, like I'll the go end. And, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I get a big piece of functionality working in and it's working fine in Chrome, then, it, you know, that's a good time to step away, go to Firefox or IE or, or any of the other browsers that I support and, um, and test it there so that before I, my mind wanders too far away from that work and, and the um, details of that code, while, the, while they're still fresh in my mind, I can kind of make sure that they work everywhere else without causing a problem in, in Chrome or in any other any of the other browsers. Yeah, I mean, I think that's going to catch a lot of the stuff. Like, I, I mean, one of the big thing, one of the big problems you run into when you're doing performance is um, reassigning something that's already been assigned, right? Can be can be a really huge performance problem. And it can manifest in, in weird, weird ways to where you wouldn't think that that assigning a property that, like assigning a new class, right? You wouldn't think that it would need, it would affect the page a ton, but it could really uh, end up thrashing things if if your if your class assignment code is doing something odd and, and just setting it over and over and over uh, again. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, using Chrome should catch that kind of stuff. Um, if you're dealing with a weird browser-specific problem. I think Google can deal with that kind of stuff. So it's definitely worth starting with Chrome and, and seeing what you can find from there. Yeah, I agree. So what is, um, you know, one of my questions is just kind of uh, at what point do you, uh, at what point do you uh, think, you know, I need to, automate, you know, this performance testing, you know, like what's driving that? Is it that, um, you know, it's just a metric for a customer where they're saying, you know, it needs to fit these metrics and they're just telling you what it needs to be in? Or is it you notice that things are slow and, you know, you're adding a lot of components and, and such. And so you're, you're saying, you know, I just want to be safe here and make sure that as I add these things in or, you know, if the user can add in, you know, 50 nodes onto a page, you know, or 50 like components onto a page that it doesn't slow down or, or at what point would it slow down? Like, I guess like, you know, where, where are you coming? Where is it coming in for you that you, um, what's driving this, I guess. God, sure. I look horrible. I'm a worst <laughs> talker. I am the worst host on earth. <laughs> That's not true. I love you. 
Um, Thank you. I love you too, buddy. <laughs> uh, in this case, um, the the work that we're doing is kind of a uh, component library. It's using uh, custom elements um, to give a consistent look and feel and consistent um, behavior and accessibility uh, tools so, so that everything is consistent across any application that uses it. Um, and for and because of that, it uses, it, it kind of has its own implementations of things like uh, standard native HTML uh, components like buttons and checkboxes and, and radio buttons, things like those that we know are very performant because they're in every browser and you just use the tag and it works great. Um, we kind of want to, so, so we're doing this as a preemptive uh, we kind of have these metrics to to test as we go forward, make sure that we don't accidentally make something less performant than what we would expect because these things can be used everywhere on a page hundreds of times potentially, and we don't want that to be a significant impact, have a significant impact on the, the performance of the page as a whole. Um, so it's it's more of a, a um, preliminary check and, and um, you know, setting a bar that we can monitor and observe whether we go past that and then we know what to go go um, look at later on if, if things change I think so I have um, I, I have these uh, there's some pages that maybe we could we could work on together um, just to you know it'd be just interesting to see like different web pages like I some girls in high school have these myspace pages that I think could really use this so uh, maybe maybe after this we could we could kind of sync up on that Totally. I miss my space. <laughs> so the, the other thing that uh, I think is nice about having a good performance, uh, good performance testing of functional tests is that you can put along things like uh, browser stack uh, and yes. other, other remote um, browser testing tools. And you can test it, test that in every version of the browser on multiple platforms. Um, Cause you're, you might, you might, have something that runs really, really great in modern browsers, and then you run it in in IE nine or whatever. Maybe they skipped IE nine. I went straight to IE ten. I don't know. Um, and uh, it'll tell you if there's any problems that are that are like, let's say it shows up in fifty percent of browsers, right? It might not have showed up in the ones that you were testing, but by automating your testing, you'll see that there might be something that's a problem in just one old browser or in ten old browsers or. Sure. Everywhere, everywhere, but what you're testing, even um, that can happen sometimes. Sure, and I, yeah, I think that you this won't solve every problem, and it won't catch everything. You'll have to to have that manual feedback as well, like the manual testing and feedback uh, for all of the browsers. But hopefully, it kind of just gives us a a bar to set, some kind of line that we draw in the sand and say, you know, if it goes beyond this, we have performance issues, and we. We we just want to to be able to find that and and um, be ahead of that before it causes a real problem for anyone that's using things uh, that we're developing. Um, and, and like along that those lines, like drawing that line in the sand, um, the, you, there's there's blog posts and talks about you know divine when you when you approach a project, define a performance budget, determine how much. Um, you know, what are the important parts that need to be performing in, in an application and make sure that they are and um, determine, you know, what, what environments it needs to run in, how fast it needs to be, um, and just really be focused on that from the beginning is, is a good thing. Cool. So um, keep us updated on... I guess what you what you end up doing. Um, it's very interesting. I mean, I know this is preliminary. You're just you know right now trying to figure out the exact way you're going to do it. Um, so I'd definitely be interested to see what you come up with. Definitely. Or or to hear. I guess is the case. Maybe well, we can see. Well, yeah, our I'll listeners see it. will hear. Yes, and our watchers will be standing in the bushes still. And the governments that are watching our every move will know. <laughs> Yes. Hey, they aren't watching. They have other governments watching for them. I'm talking about America. Like the DPRK. Come <laughs> to North Korea. So now I have to scrub out what you just said. <laughs> Thank you. 
jerk. Okay, moving right along. I never get a segment in this show. And since we now have time, because we didn't have anything planned, this is actually something I was thinking about, um, was talking about prototyping. Um, so back in the day, it used to be pretty, no, back in the day, get off my lawn. Um, it used to be when a I lot easier. <laughs> I was young. No we were progress. both young, Neil. <laughs> um, it used to be a lot easier to, to create designs for websites. You know, you didn't have to worry about uh, responsive design. You didn't have to uh, worry about uh, a lot of things, right? Like there wasn't really a lot of interactivity on web pages. Um, and so I felt this pain a lot earlier than a lot of people because we started building web apps before, I mean, that was even a thing. I, we used to have to explain to people what a web app was. Um, and so I felt the pain very early on of having not adequate tools, not having adequate tools to design and, and you know verify your designs. Um, and so this is something that now that there's enough people who are doing this, um, companies have started making tools and, and making different, um, you know, there's different approaches to, to this problem. Um, as you might know, a lot of designers use Photoshop uh, to design their screens. Um, and a lot of them have moved away from that. Uh, I moved away from Photoshop I, almost nine years ago, something like that. Like, basically, I was working on a project for Sun Microsystems. Um, and we were working on an email client that was like an email calendar, kind of like Outlook in the browser. Um, and I quickly ran into problems because every single screen had to be designed. And you had to have all these different components that had to be designed within it. Um, you didn't have all the smart symbols and things like that. And you could, to see all these pages, you either had to create multiple PD, um, you know, PSD files, or you had to toggle them all on and off uh, manually in the, in the Photoshop. Uh, so I moved from that to Adobe Fireworks, which I used for a very long time until it became discontinued and decrepit. Um, and then I moved on to Sketch. Uh, which is my the current tool I use because it provides things like artboards and and all kinds of amazing uh, things for for a designer to use. Um, but you know, Photoshop not to be outdone. They've added artboards, but again, I, I it's just not the right tool. Um, so anyway, the big thing now is when you create an interface for a mobile phone, you don't want to be just you know, looking at a static image on your, on your computer, because it's a much different experience to hold it. Um, so, and it's also a much different experience to use it. Um, so that's where obviously where prototyping comes in. So there's kind of different ways that you can, you can prototype something. Um, one being just, um, static video. So if you, for instance, uh, have this idea for this animation that could happen, um, you may, draw it out on, you know, some paper or on your iPad and, and maybe you move it into your computer and you start creating graphics for it. And then you want to see it actually animate. You think, okay, I'm pretty sold on this animation. Let's see it happen. Um, so you can make a video in, um, you know, there's many ways to make a video. Uh, a lot of people use, uh, like after effects to actually create these things because After Effects actually provides a lot of uh, scripting capabilities and you can do a lot of different things that um, it's not very obvious that that would be uh, something that's good for seeing an animation of a user interface component, but it's actually um, quite, quite powerful for that. Um, and then you have uh, other things if you want to do, um, you know, just see the different screens for, um, for something and click through them. There's, there's many apps that allow you to click through screens. Um, some people actually will use Keynote and PowerPoint to to click through screens and get a feel for the navigation in general because um, you can create hot spots on different parts of the screen. So they'll take, you know, from Photoshop, they'll export their images or even they'll just create it right in Keynote. Um, and then they will click through on, you know, these hot spots to, to link to different uh, slides. Um, and then there's other things like InVision and other apps that are online apps that you can, you can do to kind of do the same sort of thing, create these hotspots and then share it with people and show them uh, various things. But it's, it's still very limited because 
you know, anything more than a page and, you know, more than a couple pages, you start adding interactivity and the complexity grows because um, you need logic and you need all those different things um, that you just don't get from from a click and show, click and show type thing. Um, so there's these there's more interactive tools out there. Uh, one of them is Axure. Uh, this one's kind of the industry standard uh, that that a lot of people use, um, obviously, because I said it's an industry standard. I don't know how <laughs> how prevalent it is actually. Industry standard, no, that I mean, no one uses. It, it, yeah, it's the industry standard. No one uses anymore. No, um, I don't know. It's it's something that is oh, it's been around forever. Um, it's one of the, like the early tools, um, and it allows you to do a lot of different things like interactivity and logic so you can click a component and you know say that okay when i click on this it needs to move these pixels move this thing move that thing show this hide this and you do a lot of complex things but unfortunately the ui for doing it is really really click heavy like insanely so um it's it can be frustrating because it's like it's almost coding but it's not and therefore it just feels like you know what you want to do in code so why can't you just let me write the code um, luckily it actually uses JavaScript. And so you could actually inject your own JavaScript into the page, which I worked on a plugin for a while, uh, to do that, but I lost interest because it was just more work than it was worth, but you can manipulate the page afterwards, um, with code. So it, it's possible. Um, and that brings me to one that's more geared towards, um, people who write code and that's Framer. Um, Framer Studio or the open source Framer JS, which is the underpinnings of it. So the only problem that I have with Framer is that it uses CoffeeScript, and I can't stand <laughs> CoffeeScript. I don't but know how you so, guys feel about it. But it was so popular for a year. Oh man, <laughs> I hate CoffeeScript. CoffeeScript and CoffeeScript and Jade templates drive me insane. Okay, Anything I came where around. You don't have that. I came around on Jade templates. I'm not gonna did lie. Did you? I did. My blog, oh, I never blog, but my blog actually uses Jade templates everywhere. I can't read the code when there aren't all of the brackets and braces and all the different punctuations that you need. Like, I can't, it's so hard to parse. So I, I have um, invisible characters turned on in Vim, so I see the tabs and I use tabs. So I see all of that and that's how I kind of distinguish between what's indented and what's not. Yeah, that totally, that definitely works somewhat. Uh, except for in Framer Studio, where you're kind of encouraged to use the built-in editor. So, uh, you know, it can yeah. be... I mean, I think it's gotten better with their syntax highlighting, but for a while, the syntax highlighting was very poor. So um, you couldn't... I mean, it wasn't showing, like, all the different colors for all the different things. So, um, yeah, it was very, very difficult. Um, so it's, it's great, though, because it does... Um, it allows you to do just lots of cool stuff that you wouldn't be able to do quickly. Um, and that thing, that's the kind of thing is like the integration it has with sketch where you just click import, it grabs your sketch file. And now all of the objects are now objects on the screen that you can manipulate. So, and then when you update it, you just hit update and it grabs the latest version. And, you know, as long as the layers are named the same, it's going to come in again. And, um, it just allows you to quickly prototype, um, interactions. So you think, okay, I think this feels good. Um, you, you know, you get it into Framer and you click around and you go, ah, it doesn't feel right. But you can also open it up on your device too. So you can open up on your phone and play with the same thing. So it really lets you quickly have that experience of I designed it in Sketch or Photoshop. Um, and now I'm going to open up on my phone and get to pretty quickly play with it. Just like, you know, click this and show this. So it's not made for massive prototypes, which I think a lot of people get into trouble with where they don't oh, scope yeah. what yeah. they're creating so you know they try to they go okay well i'm gonna create this but then it does this and this and this they keep trying to add all this stuff and it becomes this nightmare where you're now you're writing an app um but when you what you should really be doing is going how does this specific part of the app feel this specific you know component when i click this does it feel good to pop this open here or does it feel better to do it over here you know that kind of thing um so as long as you kind of keep it smaller in scope um it I feel like it's a pretty good solution, except for CoffeeScript, which I can't stand. I just, I apologize to everyone who likes CoffeeScript. I just, I can't get into it. It drives me insane. Um, that's a whole other topic, though. Yes, yeah, so, um, I mean, start, the last. Yeah, starting with yeah, wire, starting with wireframe prototypes is so important. I, I mean, I, we have so many people that will, 
like so many friends of ours that will uh, like my mutual friends here. We have a lot of we do a lot of tech stuff, and we have friends that'll be like, "Oh, I have this idea for this website or for for whatever. I have a new startup idea," and then they'll show a prototype that is obviously they spend hundreds of hours on, right? And you use it for a couple of minutes, and you're like, "This is terrible. <laughs> like, why? Yeah. Why did you not? Uh, why didn't you just do some wireframes and play around with it and and see what worked and what didn't before you kind of sat down in in Illustrator and Photoshop and and drew every single button with your own unique skin. Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. Starting simple is just so it's so worth it. Yeah, and that's where that's where um, things like Axure and Framer are make it so much easier to do those things because you can just quickly like you go into Sketch, it doesn't have to look great. Just grab a box and draw a box and draw a box here, and you know add some interactivity like it takes 20 minutes and you can click a button and have it do something and go oh yeah this feels really good or wow this feels awful you know um you know it doesn't have to take days of your time then to then realize oh this is this is bad um and i think it's it's such a huge thing what you really should be looking for is just is this awful because there's a lot of there's a lot of times where when you're prototyping you might use something and, and say this is just okay. The and then you just need to say, well, is it going to be great when it's actually implemented? Because there's a lot of things you can do with prototype tools that are not going to be exactly the way that they're going to be, and when you when you deploy it. Um, I think a good example of that is doing animations. Uh, it's one where you might have a drop down that you use and it doesn't feel quite right, and then when it's actually implemented, someone puts just you know just the right animation curve on it. And all of a sudden, right, it feels great. Right. Or, you know, you, you add a bounce to the end of it, and they're like, "Oh, this is now it feels really, really good." So, uh, I think some people also go too far and try to uh, try to come up with exactly how it's going to work. Like th- they think that that what they've done is going to be how it's going to be implemented. And I think as long as something doesn't feel terrible, you should move forward with it, not waste too much time trying to get it perfect during prototype stage. Yeah, that's definitely the case. You know, there's there are some things that um, you know. There's some people who really advocate um, prototyping in a more like native way. So, um, and there's there's things that try you have to, to emulate. Yeah, yeah, like you can use Xcode's uh, UI builder to you know yeah, sketch out fun, a yeah. UI basically and try it, you know, and see does this feel right. You're going to get native components, but that only goes so far, of course, because again, when you're talking about like web apps. You know, you can definitely just kind of not get what exactly how you envisioned it. Yeah. So then it is, it is a a process of, and that's exactly where I was going with this is how, um, you know, how now you have to be more, firstly, you have to understand the tech more so that you understand what it's going to take to implement. Because if you don't, when you give it to the, to the developer, um, you're going to be, you might be disappointed, but having that um, conversation with the developer and saying, Hey, you know, here's my idea. Do you see anything wrong with this? And also knowing like what the limitations are, because if you go, Hey, here's my idea. And you're trying to load a hundred thousand records from a database into the screen. Well, it's probably going to lock up the browser. You know, like you're, you're going to run into problems. You're going to have a bad time. So you got to need a different solution. But if you don't know that going into it, you're going to design a whole bunch of stuff that you know then turns out like you can't do that or you can do that but it's you know not the most efficient way um and so it's really important i think that if you're a designer or you know a designer uh, that they understand the technology behind what they're designing because like if you're designing for web apps you should understand enough about the stack and enough about the space to not make stupid mistakes that are going to cost you more time um and the same thing, you know, any any platform you're designing for. And then I think that developers need to have those conversations with designers too when they get a handoff and they say, you know, this is what I'm thinking. Well, they need to understand about the implementation. They need to think through the implementation and, and point out things so that you can get on the same page and make things great instead of, you know, getting to the end and then going, oh, yeah, this is not at all what I wanted. I mean, that's where, that's where it's really tough because I'm kind of going off tooling a little bit, but getting a designer getting a developer to come in and provide feedback without getting lost in the weeds 
can yeah. be a, a little bit difficult, right? Like, um, like for, for me, if a designer asks me to go over the, some of their work, I'm only going to be looking for red flags, right? Like, there are some things that are extremely hard to do in browsers, and they're they're pretty easy to spot. And that's where you say, uh, this kind of shape is going to be a problem here, right? Like, this kind of translucent thing that you're trying to do is going to be an issue in these browsers. But, uh, but not giving crazy feedback about what you think may and may not work. Uh, and that can be kind of hard. But I, I do like for... I do like to have a developer involved in looking at the prototypes because um, I've been on some projects where a design has made it all the way to a development team uh, that like works in a different part of the country without the the development team ever seeing that prototype at all or providing any feedback on it. Uh, and then that's where it becomes really hard to kind of pass it back. So um, I don't know. Maybe, there, maybe there's some sort of blog post where, where it's like, how developers should provide feedback to designers that that we can link in the show well, notes or something. <laughs> well, also how designers should get feedback. Yeah, so, well, that's, yeah, know, that's kind of what I'm saying. How you solicit it is just as important. Yep. Um, you know, giving open ended, hey, check this out. Yeah, that's bad. <laughs> is not going to be good. Saying that's why you have to know enough about the technology to know the red flags ahead of time, so you don't just you know gloss over and go, yeah, yeah there's these problems here or whatever. Um, but the, if you have a specific thing that you think, you know, I want to make sure that this is, you know, they understand what I'm going for, that it can be implemented the way I'm doing it. Um, you know, having a specific conversation about that and giving specifics is really important. Uh, I really hate design reviews where it's just like, here, look at everything. Because then nothing really gets looked at because nothing's important then. It's just kind of like, oh, yeah, overall, it's fine. Um, and the other, so, thing, yeah, really. the other thing that's interesting about that too is that a lot of a lot of development now is also fashion. Um, I, I think a good example is when they updated. I think iOS was iOS seven or eight, where they completely changed the design language. Yeah, and seven. even and even uh, Android did it as well, where they they kind of created their own design language document, and that's one of those things where. Designers sometimes don't know about those major shifts because uh, they've been announced at like developer conferences. Like, here's this yeah. is how we're going to be doing things from now on, um, and and a lot of the time those set um, set fashion right. So everything for the next three years is going to be using that new design language, and uh, that's something that is kind of weird that developers are more knowledgeable about now. Uh, so you can sometimes not think to ask your developer, like, hey, what's fashion going to be in the next year or so when it comes to this platform or this type of website or even, like, how responsive design is done? Um, so something to be to be aware of. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, and that that um, material design, <laughs> yeah. design yeah, document that's what I was is one of, like, most brilliant things. Like, if you haven't read it, like, you should go read it. It's awesome. Like, I geeked out over that for hours it was like wikipedia for me i sat there reading it and just going wow these people really thought this through like their entire grid system and how their layouts work and the sizing of components for you know they set basically like okay here's how many units it is and you know for this size screen it's this many units and the sides this many units and there's just this math behind it all that just works and it's pretty awesome like it's really well written um i was very i didn't expect that from google i mean now it's like oh yeah like that's good but you know, if Google hit that point, hadn't done anything that remotely yeah. <laughs> approached good design. So to get that document and read it, I was, I was blown away by Even, it. Cause I've, you know, read Apple stuff and it's very technical. Like it's not is, um, I don't know how to explain it. It just seems much more technical to me than the Google stuff did, which seems much more practical. And Google released a ton of icons too, right? Like if you're, if you're a designer and you're like, Hey, someone released a bunch of free icons for the platform that we're working with you're going to be pretty happy. That's a lot of work you don't have to do. Yeah, for sure. So with with um with prototyping, is there a point in in that development or in 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 prototyping where it can help you to 
better understand the potential. Like you, it helps you to understand a good design and a good use of like a, I don't know, ex, uh, an experience, right? You can design that experience, but at what point do you um, think about accessibility and where cool features, cool usability features might hinder accessibility in some ways, or do, can these prototyping tools help with that in any way? That's a good question. Um, you have to be thinking of it from the start if that's a requirement for your project, for sure. Mm -hmm. um, for a lot of people, it's not. But for our customers, um, it generally is something you have to think about. Um, the tools, I haven't really seen much in the way of really going out of their way to make that people cognizant of that and you know provide you know, shortcuts or ways to, to test things um, for accessibility. But that is something that right from the start, you need to be thinking about that. Um, and especially things like even internationalization um, is big because, you know, if you're, you're designing something, I can tell you how many times I've seen a design that, you, you know, they show us it in a different language and it's, you know, they're, the label just goes way outside of where it was supposed to because, <laughs> hey, like our word for the is a lot different in some other language where it's, you know, really, really long to say like the shortest thing. So um, those are definitely things that you have to think about, but I guess only if it really does apply to you. Um, not that accessibility shouldn't apply, but I think the realities of the world are that some companies really don't care, um, you know. Yeah. But do the, so maybe you answered the question, but the, is, there's not really anything in the tools then that, that help with that or that help you to, to kind of think ahead of like, well, if I make a label, this, you, you know, we can expand from, this is how, how big it is in English or, or, you know, these languages. But if it's in this, this in Klingon or something, it's like, you know, really long. Yeah. Nothing that I've seen um, that is very explicit about it. Um, there is, um, there is actually though something pretty cool. Um, let me figure out what that's called. So it's a, so Envision actually just bought this thing called Silver Flows, which is another thing to go from, um, sketch. It allows you to create animations like, or create like link together elements in sketch and then export it and, and view them live, like view clicking. Um, but they have this other tool that allows you to, um, no, I just can't even remember what it's called. I think it might be called, uh, code. No, it starts with a C. I'll figure <laughs> it out. Um, <laughs> and it's a plugin though for sketch and it allows you to, it allows you to do some really cool stuff. Um, one of the things that you do is you can select an you can select a box and say fill it, fill this with an image and it'll grab an image or you can select um you know a, a like a user card where you might have um you know John Doe is the name of the person and you can say okay fill all the oh it's called craft that's right craft um craft is the plugin but you can say um you know fill this with names and it'll it'll create, you know, 20 of those user cards with random names, um, which can help you definitely spot places where, you know, you've been staring at John Doe so long that it's become this, you know, you don't really think anymore about it being a, um, you know, a variable that, that changes size and stuff. So um, that's definitely a, a very helpful thing because it's generating names. It's like, the most tedious task, which is why you're always just like John Doe or you're like, Oh, lorem ipsum. Um, and that's another thing that this plugin can do is you can just take, you know, some lorem ipsum and say, okay, use like a real articles text and it'll go to like the verge or some site and grab a paragraph. Um, so you can really get a sense of real text and how it's going to look, um, instead of just relying on lorem ipsum. Like I'm a big believer that you shouldn't use lorem ipsum. Like you should have the text already known that you're going to put in there or, at least an idea of the text because it's just easy to just say, okay, text will go here. But unless you really know what that text is and you, you know, it has meaning behind it. Um, you know, now you're just saying, okay, put text here. And then someone's going, okay, I'll write something. And you're not really making a cohesive, you know, experience. You're just kind of throwing stuff together. 
um, in boxes. That's why I use Samuel L. Ipsum. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. Is there a Trump Ipsum yet? I bet there is. <laughs> There's that insult board. Just... I saw that. Oh, I totally didn't see that. Hmm. Must have been the day I didn't have power. Yeah. Um, so anyway, um, you know, uh, prototyping is something that's, that's really important. Um, and I think that, you know, more, uh, I think there's kind of like this convergence of these coding tools like framer where, you know, you're, you're really relying on a designer that can write code. I think that's a good thing that, um, you know, a designer should understand basic coding you know, logic, like how it works in general, even if it, you don't know the specifics of, you know, what your team is using, where you couldn't write the code, like I couldn't write the code that you guys write, but I can hack together code to make stuff happen and know that it's bad. But like, at least I understand the gist, right? That kind of leads into a question I was going to ask. And do you think that the reverse is true too? Like I couldn't design what you can design, but should I understand the basics of design a bit? Yeah, absolutely. Um, the, I think that there are definitely things that, that should be understood um, more by developers. Um, I think that understanding grid systems is super important um, and not just like superficially, oh yeah, we'll slap in a grid, but really understanding um, the reasoning behind them and, and you know, not just, not just like the normal 12 column grid or whatever, but also, you know, baseline grids for typography and stuff, because, you know, just showing someone a difference between a design that doesn't use a baseline grid and one that does and having things aligned, you know, vertically to a, a certain size as well, um, gives the design a sense of polish that that's going to be missing if, you know, an engineer is looking at it and they go, okay, I just need to like slap this text in here. Well, no, it, there's, you know, a specific alignment to that, right? Like there's a specific line height and font size that, you know, make up this, you know, uh, how it looks, um, and being cognizant of those things going into it. And if you don't know, you know, making sure the designer gives you that information is a big thing. Cause when you, I know that when I design, sometimes I see something so much that you just kind of forget that you know, you didn't define it because you just, you know what it is. And so you just forget, oh yeah, I didn't tell them what that is. Um, so it's always important to, to look at those things. And yeah, I feel like that's a huge thing, padding and alignment and columns and stuff. And all those things are just really, really important. Um, but you know, I think that part of this is actually why Google went with the flat thing, which I think was really brilliant of them to realize that, Apple had all these really great artists that were really passionate about their, their product and building, you know, apps on their products that look really great. And if you can't get those artists to create great looking stuff on your platform, well, can you make it the standard look really amazing so that really anyone could slap together some stuff and at least look competent um, instead of trying to go, okay, well, this app's going to use these crazy gradients and this one's going to use this photorealistic effect and we're going to get it all wrong because, you know, engineers trying to emulate these great designers, well, you're probably not going to do a great job. Um, and instead saying, hey, let's make it flat. Let's make it simple, bright colors. Let's use padding and layout and like really, you know, let's, let's use these as our tools, as our designs. And suddenly an engineer can put something together that looks like, yeah, hey, it's pretty good, you know, instead of garish and awful. So I think that's a pretty, pretty smart move on their part, if that's why they did it. Um, okay, so I think that we're going to move on to uh, the tease from earlier for our bug of the week. So, Neil, why don't you reveal, first, I guess, restate the bug and reveal how you do it. Yeah, so I like, I like fun bugs, uh, and I think this one's fun. Um, so we got this question, uh, which is basically that we had someone that was running a lot of functional tests. So, you know, back to our functional test stuff again. Um, and uh, a lot of the content was loaded dynamically and could be from a variety of sources uh, and would display an image. Uh, and every now and then, they would uh, have something in the test where there'd be a broken image. Uh, and in, in Chrome, your broken image gets replaced with picture of a broken image. I mean, I don't know how you break a digital image, but 
its real world counterpart, oh, basically. I'll find a way. <laughs> I'll find a way. And it's this like uh, 45 by 45 pixel uh, little little image that gets put in place of your normal image. Um, oh, cool. So you just check the image size for 45 <laughs> by 45 and you're done, right? Exactly. Unless someone, cool. up, well, unless someone, uploads, a great a, bug. someone uploads a 45 by 45 pixel image. Which is... Okay, yep. That's which, an issue. All right. All right. Is, I'll give it to you. Which is rare, but uh, that is a problem. And it's also... Um, uh, it wouldn't be standard across all browsers where uh, a broken image is getting inserted. So the, the problem that we're having basically is how do you check for a broken image, right? So you say, is completed set to true? Yeah, it, it's, set, it's set to true, right? Like it, it completed and it failed. Um, you check the source, the source is set correctly, it just didn't load. Um, you can put an onload function onto every single image that gets created, um, but that's that only really works if you are loading it using JavaScript, right? If it's a if it's HTML that you inject into the page, there's not a good way to make sure that the onload function is uh, added before it's been loaded. So it's kind of crazy to think about because it seems like it should be really easy to do, but almost every single property on an image gives you some sort of valid value, right? If you ask for the width of it, it gives you whatever the width is of the placeholder image that it's using. So in that case, I think it was 45 by 45. Uh, so did a bunch of detective work. Uh, and there's an interesting property um, called natural width. And what that does is, uh, so a lot of the times you can put an image on the page and constrain it, its width and its height. So you can say that it should fill a certain area of the page. So the width that gets reported is going to be the width as it exists on the page. Like how big is this uh, node actually on the page? Uh, and that's the width you'll get back. But they have a, a property called natural width, which is the size of the original image. So the original unstretched image. So if you use natural width on uh, in Chrome, on an image that has been replaced with a broken image, you get zero. And that is clearly <laughs> a problem. Someone, I, can you save a zero by zero image? I'm not sure. Um, uh, I bet you could create one. I would but say not really. Because that's probably invalid, right? Either way. Um, there should be no image in, in your in your test that is zero by zero. So uh, it's pretty interesting. Uh, it's a property that I hadn't seen before. But it's really nice to know that that exists when you're looking for broken images. Nice. Um, yeah, that was a great one because when when you first told us both, I think we sat here for five minutes coming up with various schemes about how you could do it. And every one of them is like, nope, because it'll do this. Nope, you can't do that. Nope. Um, which was good because you had clearly thought about it. It's especially yeah. hard with functional <laughs> tests, right? Like, Because in functional tests, you don't really inject code into the page. You try not to inject code into the page. Uh, so that's one way of dealing with this is to actually inject code. But if you're doing a functional test, you want to touch that as little as possible. Right. Yeah, that's really cool. Right, fun, um, fun little bug of the week. That is a fun little bug of the week. Um, we're running a little short on time, but I wanted to... I, are we? I, <laughs> <laughs> are we? <laughs> not really. Um, you know, the FCC, they'll, they'll live. Um, so do you guys ever um, do anything with Google Maps? Yeah. I like messing around with their, their oh. API. I get directions to places. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Me too. Um, well, I was doing something on the side just for like a fun thing, helping a friend out. And they wanted to put uh, markers on a map. So, you know, first they wanted to show like a central point and then around that a radius. Yep. Uh, drop, you know, these little dots on the map. So, you know, okay, cool. Not a problem. So first I had to figure out, well, how do you do a radius? And then say like, that's constraining, like, don't put anything outside of this radius. Right. Okay. That was easy enough to figure out, um, using another, uh, of their, um, their APIs. Um, but then I got to the issue where the central point was on the coast 
and the radius stretches out into the ocean and you drop all these points randomly and suddenly all these things are in the ocean, which that is like, okay, cool. So I guess I'll just go and check to see if the lat long I gave to uh, the API, if that's land or not. Surely there's an API that I can just say, okay, is this land? Nope. Okay, don't put it there. Um, turns out that there is no API that does that, even though they clearly know it when they render it because it's blue. Um, they don't tell you that. <laughs> they don't. They don't expose that to you. Um, and there are many people who also try to figure out ways to do this. Um, some of them said, "Oh, use the um, use the elevation API to figure out if it's you know if the elevation." Because water will return like a negative number. Unless, of course, it's a lake up on a mountain, then it will not. Because the elevation is not negative. So that, that's a non-starter. Um, so I ran into a, a solution that was actually really cool. Although has some drawbacks as far as um, how many like requests you have to make. But let's say you're going to... What it does basically is it creates, the first thing it does is it creates a canvas element that's one pixel by one pixel. And then it loads in the map of your, what your Latin long is for that, um, that spot. So it basically loads in a one pixel by one pixel map onto canvas. And then it uses a canvas API to get the, the color. And then if it's within a certain range, you know that it's water because it's blue. And then if it's that, you don't drop the pin there. You get another random coordinate. Um, and if it is, you know, if it's if it's not blue, you, you drop it and you move on. Um, that was a really crazy one because now it does that 200 times where you're getting a random thing and then you check it. And then there was only one problem with that that I didn't care to fix. I just said good enough. Um Google Maps will display uh, like water borders, like on the water, yeah. the dotted lines, and those are gray. But like, so are other things on the map, so you can't like exclude that. Yeah. So sometimes it seems like more than random, it will drop it on one of those lines. Like if there's like a or a um, like a ferry crossing, they have those dots showing you that, and it will drop pins onto those because <laughs> they're not actually water but it's really hard to detect the right shade to say, well, if it's this, you know, don't do that because, you know, because there are other things on the map that are the same color. Couldn't so you, couldn't you load like a grid of pixels and look around it a little bit. You could, you could, you could definitely do that. Um, I, I gave up at that point. Cause again, this is just like not? on the side for someone. I was like, good enough, like good enough. Don't care, but it works. I'm not going to lie. Just, when you first mentioned the topic, that was my initial thing was, well, just load the tile up and see if it's blue or not. And I totally wasn't expecting that to be the solution. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I wasn't either. Um, well, and the hard thing is, is that, you know, the tile image itself, like the full tile, um, you know, you have to, cause that was my initial thing too, was like, well, just grab that tile. Cause I don't want to make all those requests to pull in an image, but only one pixel of it that I already had. Right. But the problem was, is I was trying to do, initially I was like, well, can I just translate this tile? Like, cause I already have the image loaded. So can I pull that, you know, that tile into the canvas element and then, but knowing where on that tile your latitude and longitude are, it was like not something that I could figure out a quick and easy way to do. So I said, you know what, doing 200 requests for a one by one uh, canvas is probably like a way better solution here. So that's what I did. Um, yeah, it was an interesting problem. And Google, I guess, said that they have no plans to add this to the API, the is water thing, which is just bizarre to me. Be, yeah, that I, is, I don't know why you'd be able really to strange. find all sorts of stuff about it. Like, is it a park? Is it a parking garage? You know, like, yeah, I don't, that seems not, that seems not strange to want. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I, I don't get why that's not part of the API. And there's other things that you can do, like show me buildings nearby, show me houses nearby, but you can't say, is this water? <laughs> is this a mountain? Is this inside a volcano? You can't, you can't well, ask those things. Now that we've talked about it on the podcast, it's sure to be fixed. Oh yeah. The outcry, sure be fixed. the outcry from our fans, uh, toward Google is going to be just huge. Never it's ending. Gonna be huge. It's going to be huge. 
Yeah. Like, we're going to win so much, we're going to get sick of winning. It might even be huge. It might be. Yeah. And let me tell you, Probably. there's nothing wrong with our measurement techniques at this podcast. <laughs> Isn't that right? Because Nick is going to tell us all about them next time, or maybe after next time. At some point, he'll tell us all about the measuring metrics. Definitely. Not using the metric system, though. Okay. Well, this was our, our podcast. Thanks you to the listeners. Thank you to um, the Supreme Leader. Thank you to uh, my mom, to Neil, to Nick, to Nick's mom, to Neil's mom, to the Supreme Leader's mom, if he has one. I'm not, is he, he's divine, right? So it's not, is there a mom? I'm so confused. Um, <laughs> There's a mom, but it's given by the spirit. Right. Yeah. Did you know that his dad one time played golf for the first time and hit 18 hole in ones? I heard he he 17 hole in ones and a hole in zero. Oh, yeah. There you go. (laughs) I also heard he doesn't need to eat, which I thought was fitting. Okay. Thanks, guys. (laughs) Thank you.